Hello and welcome to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, December 14th, 2023. The podcast that separates the fact from the narrative spin. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner. Here's a look at today's top stories. COP28 nations agree to transition away from fossil fuels. The Supreme Court agrees to review abortion pill restrictions. The UK's Rwanda law passes an initial parliamentary vote. Over 50 people are injured in strikes on Kyiv. Israel is accused of using white phosphorus munitions. Biden says Israel's indiscriminate bombing jeopardizes international support. Hunter Biden defies a House GOP subpoena to testify in private. Argentina devalues its peso. Tesla launches its improved Optimus Gen 2 humanoid robot. And AstraZeneca buys a U.S. vaccine company. COP28 reaches a first-ever deal to transition away from fossil fuels. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, BBC News, New York Times, New York Post, and Business Insider. More than 190 countries at the UN COP28 Climate Summit on Wednesday, hosted in Dubai, approved calls for a, quote, transitioning away from fossil fuels and energy systems in a just, orderly, and equitable manner. In an attempt to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, the deal also says the global economy should shift to net-zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. While the international call for a transition away from fossil fuels was the first of its kind, the deal didn't explicitly call for a phase-out of fossil fuels, something many countries wanted. However, this year's COP28 President Sultan Al-Jabbar of the United Arab Emirates said nations had, quote, confronted realities and set the world in the right direction. This agreement also demanded a tripling of renewables, such as wind and solar, by 2030, as well as cutting emissions of methane, a greenhouse gas more potent than carbon dioxide, in the short term. The global body stopped short of a complete phase-out due to backlash from oil exporters like Saudi Arabia and Iraq, as well as developing nations like India and Nigeria. Those skeptical of a complete phase-out also included members of the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries, which control around 80% of the world's proven oil reserves and roughly one-third of global oil output. Those in favor included smaller, climate-vulnerable island states, which were backed by the likes of the U.S., Canada, and Norway. Meanwhile, the U.S. and China, the world's two largest emitters, helped design the conditions for the agreement with U.S. climate envoy John Kerry stationing his office adjacent to his counterparts from Beijing. However, environmental groups have criticized the conditional nature of the deal, arguing that the mention of, quote, carbon capture and storage is a way of allowing countries to continue to burn fossil fuels. In the wake of the U.N.'s successful 28th attempt at reducing fossil fuel burning, crude oil prices were under pressure. The U.S. benchmark crude futures contract NYMEX WTI was trading flat at $68.72 in early trading Wednesday after falling by 3.8% the day before. Europe's benchmark Brent crude was also flat at $68.64 after slipping by 3.7%. Both benchmarks were trading near six-month lows. Eric, thank you for laying out the facts on our first story today. I'm going to start a large round of narrative spins with our Narrative A provided by UN News. While international organizations like the UN understand that more action will be needed to fully phase out fossil fuels, this agreement is still a historic accomplishment for the planet. The progress made included tripling renewable energy capacity by 2030 and financial commitments to the Loss and Damage Fund. 
As for a complete phase-out, the deal reached in Dubai on Wednesday has laid the groundwork for the inevitable end to burning coal and gas, even in the richest oil-burning countries. Global Witness has narrative beef for this story. Despite this being the most ambitious UN climate deal in history, no commitments to completely phase out fossil fuels were made, let alone strategies to help climate-effective communities in the present. This is probably because, despite references to, quote, the science, which has been clear for decades, more than 1,000 fossil fuel industry lobbyists attended the event. The final text of the deal was also cleansed of any language related to justice, which means the smaller countries most at risk of climate change won't be seeing concrete action for a long time. And the spins are just going to keep on spinning with a narrative C provided by the Federalist. Fortunately, the scientific overlords didn't get everything they wanted at this year's climate summit. For all their talk about representing the masses and winning justice for the voiceless, in reality, UN climate policy is set by a select few power-hungry pseudoscientists who still travel around the globe in gas-guzzling planes. COP28 truly doesn't mark the beginning of the end to fossil fuels, which means the end of eating meat, using a gas stove, and countless other draconian laws coming soon to a government near you. And finally for this story, there is a nerd narrative coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. They say there's a 50% chance that the average global temperature in the year 2100 will be 2.5 degrees Celsius higher than the average global temperature in the year 1880. The Supreme Court is about to hear an abortion pill case. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, Associated Press, Forbes, CBS, and Politico. The U.S. Supreme Court on Wednesday agreed to review an appeals court decision that restricts access to the abortion pill Mifepristone. The Biden administration and Danco Laboratories, the maker of Mifepristone, have appealed a ruling that prohibits distributing the drug through the mail, in addition to other restrictions that would even affect states where abortion remains legal. The decision of the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, temporarily suspended in April, will remain on hold until the Supreme Court's ruling which is expected to be announced by the end of June after the case is heard in the spring. Meanwhile, the justices rejected a separate appeal from groups who requested they consider whether the approval of mifepristone and a generic version of the drug in 2000 by the Food and Drug Administration was legal. Last year, in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization case, the Supreme Court overturned its Roe v. Wade decision, which had guaranteed a federal right to an abortion. Abortion by pill is reportedly more prevalent than surgical abortions, even before the overturning of Roe v. Wade, with the FDA attesting to mifepristone safety. Adam, thank you for presenting those facts. The first spin is a left narrative, and it's coming from Axios. It's the role of the Supreme Court to make sure the appeals court isn't legislating from the bench. The Dobbs decision didn't ban abortion nationwide. It gave dominion over abortion to the states. By severely restricting the safe and effective method of obtaining an abortion, the appeals court has overstepped its bounds. The Supreme Court must also make sure that the FDA isn't undermined or the future of that vital agency could be in jeopardy. And the Federalist is going to counter that with the right narrative. The FDA must be stopped from arbitrarily approving drugs that doctors have warned can have ill effects just so the Democratic administration can fulfill its promise to provide abortion on demand to those who wish to violate the rights of the unborn. Making mifepristone widely available allows a path for circumventing restrictions 
that have legally been adopted since the Dobbs decision. The Metaculous Prediction community says that there's a 5% chance that elective abortion will be banned in the U.S. before 2030. News coming from the U.K. as the Rwanda law passes an initial parliament vote. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, the official website of the U.K. Parliament and the Supreme Court. Despite announcements by five conservative backbench factions stating they would not support the government policy, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's Rwanda bill has successfully passed through the initial stages of Parliament within the House of Commons. A second reading of the Safety of Rwanda, or Asylum and Immigration Bill, on Tuesday evening saw the policy pass through the Commons by 313 to 269 votes, with 37 Conservative Party members of Parliament among those choosing to abstain from the vote. Having already passed an initial reading on December 7th, the bill must pass a committee stage, a report stage, and a third reading stage before repeating the process in the House of Lords before amendments are considered and the royal assent is given. The Rwanda bill aims to, quote, prevent and deter unlawful migration, relocating asylum seekers to the East African state of Rwanda. The bill affirms the sovereignty of Parliament and claims that individuals sent to Rwanda will be protected under the All of the United Kingdom's Obligations Under International Law, while also declaring Rwanda a safe country. The bill comes after the UK Supreme Court rejected an appeal by the Home Office on November 15th, after the Court of Appeal ruled the policy to be unlawful. The Supreme Court cited, quote, substantial grounds for asylum seekers to face, quote, ill treatment in Rwanda, including alleged noncompliance with international principles. While the One Nation Group, a conservative faction totaling approximately 100 lawmakers, backed the legislation, the right of the party has argued that the law will still not stand in court. The Labour Party also voted against the bill, with Shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper arguing the UK was, quote, paying the price as a result of a Tory civil war. Eric, thank you. I'm going to start the spins with a left narrative provided by The Guardian. While Sunak will be relieved by the bill's initial passing, The Prime Minister's authority has been damaged as his own party can't even agree on this policy. Sunak now faces a prolonged period of political infighting after promising amendments to the legislation in return for support within the Commons. With only a fragile hold over the government, an early election in the new year may materialize if the Rwanda bill doesn't successfully pass through Parliament. And the Telegraph gives us the right narrative. The public supports the Rwanda plan, despite frustrating blockades by the UK's judiciary. Parliament is sovereign, and the government's latest treaty ensures that Rwanda will uphold its end of the deal. Judges are not policymakers and should not be expected to influence politics in this manner. The conservative government will continue its already successful reduction in immigration. The passing of this policy in Parliament is only the beginning of stricter border security. And the Metaculous Prediction community think that there's a 12% chance that the Tories, led by Rishi Sunak, will form the first government after the next UK election. News out of Ukraine, over 50 have been injured in Russian missile strikes on Kyiv. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Ukranska Pravda and Politico. At least 53 civilians were injured after Russian missiles targeted the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv in early morning attacks on Wednesday. The attacks come hours after Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky met with U.S. President Joe Biden at the White House and reiterated Ukraine's need for additional military aid, including support for missile defenses. With Congress yet to approve additional U.S. spending in Ukraine, 
an issue that's become tied to a thorny domestic debate on immigration, Biden told Zelensky in a press conference that he had full confidence that Ukraine could win the war with Russia and that the U.S. would remain closely by its side. However, he acknowledged, we're in negotiations to get funding we need, not making promises, but hopeful we can get there. I think we can. Minutes earlier, Biden also told Zelensky that the U.S. would continue to supply Ukraine with air defenses, artillery, and other weapons for, quote, as long as we can, a stark contrast from Washington's previous mantra of, as long as it takes. Biden did announce a $200 million package for Ukraine, pulling from previously authorized funds, but the figure is expected to be well short of covering all of Ukraine's needs. Meanwhile, Zelensky reportedly is said to have told a private audience at Ukraine's Washington embassy on Monday that the country had only a, quote, handful of air defense missiles left to protect Kyiv. The report was published Tuesday, preceding Moscow's attack on the Ukrainian capital hours later. Ukrainian officials said that the Russians fired 10 missiles overnight, but alleged to have shot all of them down with missile defenses. Nonetheless, falling missile debris is reported to have caused damage to a number of buildings, including a kindergarten and several private residences. Of the 53 injured, 23 were hospitalized for further treatment. Thank you for those facts, Adam. The first spin is a pro-establishment narrative. It's coming from the U.S. Department of Defense. Despite President Vladimir Putin's bet that the American people will hang Ukraine out to dry, the U.S. remains a steadfast supporter of Ukraine. Although Congress is currently debating Ukraine's next potential security packages, the U.S. will no doubt prove Putin wrong and give Ukraine all the military assistance it needs in order to defeat him. The establishment critical narrative is provided by Politico. Although President Joe Biden promised Ukraine a great deal, his words indicated he was a lot less certain that he'd be able to deliver them. Quote, as long as it takes, has turned into, quote, as long as we can. On the question of further aid packages, Biden said he was, quote, not making promises. According to the nerds at Metaculus, there's a 21% chance that the next Russian leader will disapprove of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The United States is concerned over reports Israel used white phosphorus munitions. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, Washington Post, The Hill, Ynet News, Haaretz, and the World Health Organization. The U.S. is concerned about reports that Israel may have used U.S.-supplied white phosphorus munitions in violation of international law during an attack two months ago in southern Lebanon, White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby said on Monday. Kirby's comments follow a Washington Post report on Monday that Israeli forces shelled the Lebanese town of Deira near the Israeli border on October 16th with U.S.-made artillery shells containing white phosphorus. The human rights organization Amnesty International called for the attack, in which nine civilians were injured, to be investigated as a war crime. Quote, we'll be asking questions to try to learn a little bit more, Kirby further commented on the report, noting that the chemical substance has, quote, legitimate military utility, including signaling troops or creating a smokescreen. If the U.S. provides white phosphorus to another military, it expects its use to be consistent with the laws of armed conflict, Kirby added. Responding to the report, the Israel Defense Forces, or IDF, issued a statement saying that, quote, the IDF only uses legal military equipment and also has legal white phosphorus smoke grenades. These shells would, quote, not be used in urban areas except in certain unique cases, as defined by international law, the statement reportedly continues. 
In late October, Amnesty claimed to have found evidence that Israel had used white phosphorus in Lebanon in three further cases, with no reports of civilian casualties. Earlier that month, Human Rights Watch blamed Israel for using the substance in its military operations in Gaza and Lebanon, putting civilians at risk. Per the World Health Organization, the deployment of white phosphorus is permitted when deployed for legitimate military operations, but violates international law when it is intentionally used as, quote, an incendiary weapon directly against humans in a civilian setting. The chemical substance ignites in the air, is difficult to extinguish, and can cause serious long-term health damage, including severe burns. Eric, thank you for the facts regarding that story. We're going to start the spins with a pro-Israel narrative provided by Ynet News. These allegations falsely suggest that Israel committed a war crime by using white phosphorus and damaged the reputation of the Israeli military. The IDF's use of smoke grenades with white phosphorus complies with international law and serves to obscure the enemy, not to attack. There's no reason for Washington to be concerned as the Israeli Supreme Court in 2013 imposed very strict conditions on the army's use of white phosphorus in populated areas. All Israel is doing is defending its population, following the laws of war against Hezbollah and other terrorist groups in Lebanon. The Palestine Chronicle gives us a pro-Palestine narrative. The report confirms accusations made by human rights groups that Israel repeatedly committed war crimes against civilians by using white phosphorus in Lebanon but also in Gaza. While the deployment of this toxic chemical may be legal under certain circumstances, it is obvious that its allegedly purely military use near populated areas also puts civilians at risk. That the U.S. has supplied Israel with such munitions makes it complicit in Israel's war crimes. As usual, Washington is concerned but will probably not take any further action against its close ally as civilian horrors continue to mount in Gaza. And the nerds have another opinion. They think that there's a 20% chance that there will be 400 or more deaths from armed conflict between Israel and Hezbollah by 2024. And that's according to the Bataculus Prediction Community. I'm confused over one aspect of this, Eric. It says that it can be used as a smoke screen. But uh, yeah. usually when you use smoke grenade type thing, it would be to obscure the vision of your opponent and then you come in and attack. But isn't that using it in the same vicinity as a civilian that they say you can't use it in? I mean, what are they smoke screening against? I don't get it. I really think the problem is, is they're using the wrong kind of screen. A Skittle grenade? Yes. And it'd be like a big rainbow candies. They'd be like, ooh, Skittles. <laughs> President Biden says Israel's indiscriminate bombing jeopardizes international support. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, The Telegraph, I-24 News, Israel National News, The Times of Israel, and BBC News. At an event in Washington on Tuesday, U.S. President Joe Biden suggested that Israel is losing international support due to, quote, indiscriminate bombing in the Gaza Strip. Biden also said that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu needed to change his hardline government and that Israel can't say no to an independent Palestinian state. U.S. officials on Tuesday confirmed that Israeli forces had begun to pump seawater into the sprawling tunnel network underneath the Gaza Strip, saying it could take weeks to fully flood the tunnels. It is assumed that Hamas is keeping at least some of the hostages in the tunnels. And Israel has declared 19 of 135 people still held in captivity in Gaza dead. The Israeli military announced on Wednesday that 10 of its soldiers 
mainly from the Golani Brigade, were killed in the Sahaya neighborhood in the northern Gaza Strip on Tuesday. A colonel and a lieutenant colonel were among those who died, bringing the reported death toll for Israeli soldiers in the Gaza Strip to 115 since the ground offensive began. The UAE's ambassador to the UN, Lanazaki Nuzebe, also said this week that her country would condition financial and political support for the reconstruction of Gaza after the war on the advancement of a U.S.-backed initiative toward a two-state solution. On Monday, a gathering of Arab leaders in Qatar confirmed that they were opposed to deploying an international force or their own troops into the Gaza Strip as a settlement to the current hostilities. Qatar's Prime Minister Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdulrahman al-Tahani said that no regional state would put boots on the ground following after an Israeli tank. Gaza's health ministry reports that the conflict has left over 18,000 people in the Gaza Strip dead many of whom it claims are children. The Israeli death toll stands at 1,200 people. Those are the facts, and the round of spins begins with a pro-Israel narrative. It comes from Jerusalem Post. Though this has been a tragic war, Israel cannot allow Hamas to survive. Hamas seized upon the temporary pause to mark Israeli positions and prepare itself for continued attacks on Israeli forces in Gaza. Indeed, the pace at which Israeli forces maneuvered in Gaza threw Hamas's military leadership off kilter, and Israel will have to work intelligently in its campaign in the south of the Strip to fully eliminate the terrorist group so it can never launch an attack like October 7th again. The pro-Palestine narrative is provided by Middle East Eye. Israel continues to demonstrate that its war is not against Hamas but against the Palestinian people as a whole. Nowhere in Gaza is safe, and Israel has effectively rendered the north of the Strip unlivable. Unfortunately, the temporary ceasefire only gave civilians a few days of relative rest, and now Israel has returned to killing Palestinians at an unprecedented rate. The U.S., Israel's biggest ally, must exert more pressure to end the war. The Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 4% chance that a shared power arrangement will have de facto power in the Gaza Strip on January 1st, 2025. Hunter Biden defies the House GOP's subpoena to testify in private. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, Wall Street Journal, Fox News, PBS NewsHour, and Washington Post. Speaking to reporters in front of the Capitol building Wednesday morning, U.S. President Joe Biden's son Hunter said he will defy Republican efforts to subpoena him for a closed-door deposition. Hunter Biden described the House Oversight and Judiciary Committee's investigation as, quote, illegitimate and based upon, quote, distortions, manipulated evidence, and lies. Hunter Biden, who has faced probes into his overseas business dealings and alleged tax evasion, also said, quote, Father was not financially involved in my business, an allegation Republicans are seeking to use to bring about impeachment proceedings against the president. While Hunter Biden has said he's willing to testify in an open hearing, Republicans say he can't dictate the terms, also threatening to hold him in contempt. Hunter further alleged that MAGA Republicans have, quote, invaded his privacy, attacked his family, and ridiculed his struggle with addiction. Regarding specific allegations of corruption involving Joe Biden, he claimed his father was not involved in his dealings with business with Ukrainian or Chinese companies. In response to Hunter Biden's press conference, during which he also questioned what the House GOP was, quote, afraid of by pursuing a closed-door deposition, Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer, Republican of Kentucky, said the president's son, quote, just got into more trouble today. 
Comer and Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan, Republican of Ohio, both stated that they would begin looking into contempt of Congress proceedings. House GOP members have alleged that during President Biden's vice presidency, he advocated for a top Ukrainian prosecutor, Viktor Shokin, to be fired to stop an investigation into Ukrainian gas company Burisma, a company Hunter was on the board of. They have also alleged that the Biden administration has since meddled in a U.S. Department of Justice probe into Hunter. All right, Eric, we're going to start the spins with the Republican narrative provided by Town Hall. Hunter's little stunt on Capitol Hill has only dug himself deeper into a hole. Besides opening himself up to contempt charges, the president's son also exposed his continual shifting of the goalposts concerning how involved his father was in his business dealings. Stating that his dad was not financially involved is much different from his previous claims, having previously asserted no involvement at all. Now, however, the world knows that there were dinners and phone calls involving Joe Biden. It's time to charge Hunter Biden with contempt and pursue impeachment for Joe Biden. The Democratic narrative comes from Huffington Post. The so-called bombshell evidence Republicans have tying Hunter and his father to corruption allegations is merely a money transfer reimbursement for truck payments. With that incredibly weak evidence in hand, it's no wonder why these far-right activist politicians want to hide their likely insignificant deposition from the public. This is a concerning GOP kangaroo court with so-called evidence being cherry-picked and absurdly taken out of context. And the nerds are speaking up again. They think that there's a 25% chance that Joe Biden will be impeached by the House of Representatives. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Javier Millet's newly sworn-in administration devalued Argentina's peso by more than 50% against the U.S. dollar on Wednesday as part of the Libertarians' comprehensive plan to reverse the country's debilitating economic crisis. Economy Minister Luis Caputo on Tuesday announced a plan to devalue Argentina's currency from 400 pesos to the U.S. dollar to 800, while Malays warned of the looming shock treatment to deal with his country's economic emergency in his inaugural speech earlier this week. He said, for a few months, we're going to be worse than before. In his televised announcement, Caputo also acknowledged that the country will still grapple with hyperinflation in the coming months, with prices expected to rise more than 200% this calendar year. Despite the stark rise in official inflation, the country's black market, which more accurately reflects the peso's value, has a market rate of 1,045 pesos to the dollar. The administration will also implement a series of austerity measures, including vast subsidy cuts, cancellation of tenders for public works projects, and plans to eliminate nine government ministries. However, the libertarian government will double social spending for the nation's poorest. Caputo didn't specify by how much the state would reduce its generous subsidy of fuel and transport, but he announced cutting the number of government ministries in half and halting both discretionary transfers and all ongoing public works that don't have external financing. He also announced the suspension of state advertising to cut 34 billion pesos. Argentina has experienced 143% inflation over the last 12 months, with 40% of the population living below the poverty line. The country also has a trade deficit of $43 billion and owes $45 billion to the International Monetary Fund, or the IMF, with $10.6 billion due to multilateral and private creditors by April. The IMF welcomed the new government's proposed measures. Adam, thank you for laying out the facts. 
The round of spins begins with a right narrative. It's coming from Armstrong Economics. Javier Millet is staying true to his campaign promises and doing what's best for Argentina. Even if it stings in the short term, he understands that triple-digit inflation and a 40% poverty rate cannot come down overnight, and that the only viable solution is to drastically reduce the size of government. While many politicians around the world print more money to temporarily stave off growing doom, Millet is taking a principled stand that will benefit future generations of Argentinians. And a left narrative is provided by Buenos Aires Herald. The man who can't understand the data on COVID deaths shouldn't be in charge of national economic policy. Malay is taking a radical and dangerous approach that could further damage Argentina's fragile economy and democracy. The far-right leader calls himself a libertarian but is acting far more like a fascist with his austerity measures as he exploits the anxiety of Argentinians to provide a doomsday scenario that can only be fixed by him. The Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 24% chance that Argentina will fully dollarize its economy before 2028. Tesla unveils the Optimus Gen 2.0 humanoid robot. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Telegraph. Futurism, NDTV, ARS Technica, and MSN. On Tuesday night, Tesla unveiled a new version of its humanoid robot called the Optimus 2.0 also known as a Tesla bot. Posting a video of the robot on X, doing a squat without falling over, the new release follows a September update that showed Tesla's earlier Optimus sorting different colored objects and doing yoga stretches. Tesla CEO Elon Musk first revealed the Optimus robotics program in 2021, which was initially met with skepticism by some analysts. However, the newly updated Optimist displayed marked improvements over its predecessor, which was criticized for awkwardly shuffling across the stage at Tesla AI Day last year. Tesla says the new Optimus is 30% faster and 22 pounds lighter than last year's Android and features tactical sensors on each fingertip for improved dexterity. On Wednesday, Musk shared the robot's demo video on his X page, with a caption reading, quote, Optimus. In addition to its new features, the video showed two robots dancing. Tesla says it plans to start using the robot in its manufacturing operations. While the newest generation isn't currently designed for production or sale, it is said to represent a breakthrough in Musk's efforts to replace human labor with artificial intelligence. Musk has said that he wants robots to take over dangerous and menial jobs currently done by humans. Tesla isn't alone in the development of humanoid robots. In October, Amazon revealed its Digit Robot, which stands 5'9", weighs 65 kilograms, or 143 pounds, and can carry up to 35 kilograms, or 77 pounds, that can lift and sort empty baskets in its warehouse. Meanwhile, Hyundai-owned Boston Dynamics has a headless robot called Atlas that can run and jump. Eric, thank you for the facts on that interesting story. We've got a Narrative A spin connected with it, provided by The Street. While the Musk-hating establishment mocked previous iterations of Tesla's Optimus bot, the newly unveiled Optimus 2.0 has silenced many critics by displaying Musk's ingenuity in just a short period. Tesla has vastly improved the bot's size and functionality while showing the Android performing various neat tricks. Musk is certainly a very ambitious man that most people cannot understand. However, his company continues to push boundaries and it's not unthinkable that he could pull off creating a functional humanoid robot that can perform dangerous jobs currently performed by humans. The Sun gives us Narrative B. 
Elon Musk is back again with another strange Tesla brainchild, unveiling the disturbingly creepy Optimus 2.0 robot. The video of the robot cracking an egg and dancing is unsettling, to say the least. But it does show just how far Madman Musk will go to replace Tesla's workforce with robots. The Tesla bot proved to be an embarrassment when it debuted last year, and while its successor has many improvements, it remains to be seen if it can fulfill Musk's vision. Nonetheless, a, quote, successful robot could be the worst outcome for everyone, except for the billionaire and his henchmen. And the nerds are going to wrap up this story. They think that there's a 50% chance that Tesla bots will be available to U.S. consumers by January 2031. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. AstraZeneca buys a U.S. vaccine company for $1.1 billion. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Archive, Guardian, Reuters, Financial Times, and Forbes. On Tuesday, the Britain-based pharmaceutical powerhouse AstraZeneca announced that it reached an agreement to purchase Icosavax, a U.S.-based biopharmaceutical company developing vaccines using a protein-virus-like formula. The drug maker struck a $1.1 billion deal that will allow the company to expand its vaccine and immune therapy capabilities. AstraZeneca began its work initially in response to the COVID pandemic. Icosavax develops vaccines for the Respiratory Sensational Virus, or RSV, and Human Metanomovirus, which are in the rise in children and adults over the age of 60. Both viruses can cause severe illnesses such as kidney, cardiovascular, and respiratory diseases. The cash purchase immediately bolstered the stock value of Icosavax to $15.25 per share on Tuesday, an increase of 45% in the U.S. pre-market trade. AstraZeneca recently went public regarding a separate $2 billion deal to purchase and develop an obesity treatment. These moves prompted Goodbody's head of healthcare equity research, Adam Barker, to say, quote, I would view this vaccine acquisition as potentially the start of a larger franchise and not just a one-off. In response to the announcement, Icosafax CEO Adam Simpson said, We believe it offers the opportunity to accelerate and expand access to our vaccine for older adults at risk. Before becoming final, the deal will need to clear regulatory approvals and final logistical issues. Thanks, Adam, for those facts. The first spin is the establishment critical narrative, which comes from public citizen. Big Pharma's greed is spreading across the United States and the world. Greed-filled deals lead to monopolies on critical life-saving drugs that result in greater costs for Americans while maximizing profiteering. It's high time that Americans recognize this tragedy, call out these companies and the elected officials supporting them. This latest merger and acquisition is just the latest example of monopolization in this sector. The pro-establishment narrative is provided by The Hill. Leading a successful pharmaceutical company is a good deed that's often punished. There are constant news stories of professionals saving lives, yet pharmaceutical companies saving millions of lives are often defamed. Companies labeled as Big Pharma took the lead during the COVID pandemic and got heads of governments to prepare products that have saved millions. These companies work hand-in-hand -hand with government regulators, too. Mergers like this are a boon for healthcare and consumers. Our final nerd narrative of today's podcast, coming from the Metaculous Prediction community, says there's a 28% chance that there will be recurring virus-driven lockdowns during the period 2030 to 2050.
Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, December 14th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team that extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Podcast.